Hi, I'm Shlomi Ron, CEO at the Visual Storytelling Institute, and also your host for the Visual Storytelling Today podcast. And today I decided to pick a, one of the less talked uh, topic uh, when you think about uh, artificial intelligence and uh, machine learning, all these great buzzwords that uh, marketers use, primarily I would say in the mid to enterprise level uh, companies. On one hand, what we see is this uh, tremendous, tremendous uh, growth rate uh, in terms of investment. You know, the latest stat talk about uh, almost uh, increase of almost 20 times uh, by 2025 to 89.8 billion. And when you ask uh, marketers what they think about it, they all, you know, go crazy about it. And uh, it's actually the department that is mostly get uh, the top uh, dollar for investments. When you ask consumers, they also say, this is great. You know, we like uh, the personalization. But underneath all these uh, positive uh, signals, what we started seeing is that uh, some, <clears throat> I would say, overzealous uh, marketers that uh, sit on the what we call the hyper-personalization spectrum uh, enter this red zone of uh, kind of creeping out audiences. So, and that's something that uh, is really the topic for this uh, episode uh, in a nutshell is how we, how we should think about personalizing uh, visual stories without creeping out your audience. And for this uh, exciting topic, uh, I have a fantastic guest here that I just came across is some of his uh, fantastic articles on LinkedIn. Uh, this is uh, Vince Jeffs. He's a senior director of product strategy, marketing, AI, and decisioning at Pegasystem. Uh, he's responsible for product strategy, positioning, messaging, and thought leadership for the Pegas Decision Hub. It's their only, always on customer engagement brain, which uses artificial intelligence, machine learning to optimize customer engagement. A little bit about uh, Vince uh, prior. Uh, jobs he led a variety of uh, ai and, and uh, crm roles at ibm unica and sas just to name a few so welcome to the show vince i'm so excited to have you here yeah thanks uh it's great to be here <clears throat> awesome so since we have this uh, very unique angle that uh, as I said in the intro, not a lot of people talk about, they just tend to stay on the rosy side. Uh, before we jump right in, maybe you can give our audience uh, just a little bit of your backstory, how you got started in the marketing technology, uh, AI, all that. Sure, absolutely. Um, well, my story uh, goes through about four kind of main areas. Um, that eventually became the kind of perfect MarTech storm for me. Um, it took me until I was about 40 to learn what I wanted to be when I grow up. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I did finally arrive there. Uh, and the first kind of area was, uh, the, you know, this marketing and visual arts area. Mm -hmm. um, I have an undergraduate degree uh, from Georgetown University in the business school. And believe it, believe it or not, marketing. There's not many people that have, yeah. uh, <laughs> that have degrees in marketing that actually become marketers. They usually come from all other walks of life. Um, but, That's um, in English, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like journalism, you know, uh, yeah. 
sociologists, um, certainly scientists now, but uh, mm -hmm. I also love uh, photography. I'm kind of an amateur photographer and, and uh, I, I like art. And um, I have uh, several siblings that are successful artists, uh, mm -hmm. as well as a daughter uh, that's a very uh, successful graphical artist. So I guess it's in the blood. I didn't inherit as much of that artistic blood as they did. Um, they're much better than I am, but, uh, but I like it and I have some of that in me. Um, the second big area is data and statistics. Mm -hmm. um, so I discovered the sort of the power of data and how much I loved working with it um, after I was an undergraduate and I had a working, uh, I had a job working uh, for, for a, a company that did cancer research. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, I did SAS programming way back when you did programming oh, yeah. on a teletype, oh, which yeah. uh, there's no surprise. I'm pretty old. So, <laughs> so there you go. Um, but I went on to get my, because of that, I liked it so much. I went on to get my um, MS degree from the University of Maryland in database systems and operations research. Mm -hmm. So there was kind of area two. Then area three wow. was process. So, um, my first job out of grad school was with UPS and I was an industrial engineer. So mm -hmm. needless to say, industrial engineers study process um, and, and get very good at, uh, at that part of it. Uh, and then on the last area was technology. I finally kind of put it all together uh, when I left UPS and I took a job with uh, an agency called Rap Collins, mm -hmm. part of a big, big ad group called the Omnicom group. And they, we formed a group inside of Rap Collins we called the Marketing Technology Group. We weren't smart enough to call it the MarTech Group right, um, right. back then, um, but we were building custom data-based marketing personalization systems back in 1998 oh, wow. uh, with whatever software we could get our hands on. Um, That's incredible. And, uh, and so those are kind of the four areas that, that kind of covers the creative, uh, data, process, technology, and and I just love the combination of them. So that's my backstory and kind of how I got to where I am today. No, this is fantastic. It's really kind of uh, sums it up, you know, the, the right brain working together with the left brain and bringing some interesting uh, career that you're leading right now. So, and that brings me to the topic of our uh, podcast today, which is before we kind of uh, go to the different nuances if we can just say, you know, level set the playing field for our audience in terms of terminology, because uh, we kind of lose, use it uh, fairly loosely, you know, the, the term hyper personalization and, and creepiness. Maybe you can start mm. at least by defining what do they mean? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, hyper personalization is really all about making uh, experiences uh, individualistic. So mm -hmm. um, tuning them and crafting them and tailoring them to the person. Um, the creepiness factor comes in when you do that um, without full permission, honestly. Yeah. That's, that's a big part of it. But I would, I would break it down into three areas. And I would call those feeds, speed, and greed. <laughs> um, that's that's fantastic. I love it. So so the the feeds are the data that uh, that's needed for personalization. You've got to gather that data up. Um, you know, there's different kinds of it. Uh, there's plenty of it these days. Um, you know, we lived through the big data era, and now we're well into it. Uh, the or the advent of it, should I say? And um, you know, all that stuff that we do every day on all these devices provides all this exhaust, if you will. 
mm -hmm. uh, that is just constantly vacuumed up uh, by, by the people that are interested in doing personalization. The speed comes in, I think, with um, how fast that brands have to be able to react in, to this collected data in, in order to do something meaningful in the moment. Mm -hmm. um, so they have to find insights, but they have to act on them really fast because if they don't, their competitors will act, right. you know, fast enough and take advantage of that situation. So, so that's the speed part. And then the greed, that's, <laughs> that's where we uh, get into crossing the creepiness boundaries. Um, and I, I wrote an article on this, um, it, you know, on the blogs, the, the site I blog on called Customer Think. I called it the hyper-personalization paradox being relevant without crossing the creepy line. And um, if the audience wants to re read it, just Google hyper-personalization paradox and it comes up ranked one. But mm -hmm. basically it explores this whole area of, um, you know, where these lines are for each of us. Because um, they're a little different. And just like anything, um, how, where you think creepiness starts, I might not. Um, but then at some point I find it creepy also. So marketers need to be thinking about that aspect of it and, uh, and being very careful about how they roll out personalization, um, because crossing that creepy line can have really adverse effects. So, so is it uh, accurate to say that basically when you talk about the, the feeds bucket, uh, it's basically include, uh, some variables that objectively are, Fall, because fall under the creepiness side, but there's other variables that are on the subjective side that could vary from one person to another, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, some variables are very much black and white. Yep. Um, there's also laws about certain variables, right? Mm -hmm. About how much you can do in certain situations with, you know, PII data uh, and, um, you know, and data like, uh, you know, data that is, uh, you know, by law, you can't discriminate based on, you right. know, like, you know, sex and age and, yep. and, you know, things like this. So, so I think some of it is, is, is fairly, you know, rigid in, in terms of if you cross it, you're literally doing something illegal. Um, but then, but then there's other times we have to be very careful because those attributes can actually be underneath the covers, mm. disguised in other attributes that you're feeding the machine, if you will, right. the personalization right. machine. And it can still end up discriminating based mm. on those factors, even though they weren't, uh, the machine wasn't using those firsthand, so to speak. I see. And just to kind of zoom out a little bit for our audience that is comprised from, you know, just uh, startups, entrepreneurs that maybe don't use these full-blown CRM, CRM systems and mid to enterprise level folks. Can you give us like, you had a very nice uh, depiction of the variety of levels of personalization. Maybe you can give us a review so people can actually position themselves in the right bucket. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I think um, just to make it sort of as simple as possible, I think it kind of boils down to, um, you know, kind of depths of the customer knowledge mm -hmm. and the value of that information to both parties. That's the way I look at it. There's a, you know, sort of a matrix you can build with those two dimensions, if you will. So, for example, knowing my first name is not deep insight, right? Um, and it's equally not that value, valuable to me that you know that about me. 
Right. Um, on the other hand, the fact that you can track my individual driving habits mm -hmm. um, is pretty deep information, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and how you do that, if you ask me permission and I have your app and I opt into it and you provide me with an auto insurance discount, um, assuming I'm a good driver, you know, that's deeper information, but it's also valuable to both the insurer and the policyholder. So I think that's a, that's a good example of like yeah. a simple attribute, if you will, um, that, you know, again, doesn't really necessarily provide that much value and is pretty mm -hmm. easy to personalize on. And then one that's much deeper that um, you have to be careful with again, because if you use that information without permission, that's creepy that you're, that you're tracking and surveilling me at that level. Right, right. And just kind of a side question that uh, I'm sure it's uh, of great interest uh, to a lot of folks here. You know, a lot of people, you know, a couple steps before, you know, using this uh, high-end uh, AI super systems, you know, most likely have this one sheet with their buyer persona profile, right? <laughs> right. That, that is about uh, trying to provide some sort of commonalities to their ideal customer. Right. Obviously, few steps above that is, is where you feed the, the machine with variables that actually track behavior and both historically and also in real time and is able to predict uh, what should be the next uh, best action, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, it's not necessarily this like, you know, amazing leap from small business with very little customer data and a small number of customers to big enterprise. I mean, if you're a small business and you're doing business <clears throat> in more than one country yep. and you have customers that, you know, speak different languages, right away you're dealing with, you know, different cultural aspects and different attributes of those customers that, you know, if nothing else, you should at least be putting in two major buckets. Right. Right. Um, so I think that's, you know, a good example of where, you know, there is never one persona. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, to me, I see it like the big difference, you know, when you don't have the big machinery, you just use one piece of the buyer profile and try to target your messaging, your story, your videos, according to that, you know, holy Bible. But when you transition to a more sophisticated AI CRM system, then obviously this whole buyer persona page that you used to have is dynamically changing according to action that your customer is doing in real time. That's the big difference. So it, yeah, yeah, exactly. Because, you know, to take that example of a small business again, you may very well know that your customer base is, let's say, very young. So you say, oh, I, I'm, I'm, my product and services are interesting to millennials. Yep. versus, you know, an older demographic. Well, that's great. And so clearly you're going to tune mm -hmm. your content, your storytelling, uh, your, you know, your marketing efforts to that persona. Um, but very quickly, you're going to have to get even a little bit more specific. And that's, right. that's what we're talking about when we, maybe that's not hyper-personalization, but it's another degree of personalization. Got it. So talking about the hyper-personalization problem, how big is it that you see it in the market? And can you give maybe one or two examples from the industry that can really illustrate this problem? Yeah, um, I, I, I think it's actually not a huge, huge problem yet because I think that most businesses are 
not the technology's there, but most businesses haven't fully adopted it yet. Mm-hmm. I think as they, as and we know what naturally happens, the cost of this technology goes down, it yep. gets easier to use, there's more open source, there's more data, it can be collected and stored for, you know, cheaper. So huh. we're going to see more and more of it. And I think that's why it's like, it behooves us now, you know, to, to start down the right path. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a couple of uh, pretty marquee examples of, uh, <laughs> of, of faux pas. Um, one good one is uh, about five years ago, Pinterest sent emails to uh, unengaged women assuming they were getting married. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah, and um, literally, I think the quote came back uh, uh, from one of the tweets uh, saying, Pinterest assumed that I'm getting married. Um, caused all my, because of all my pins about wedding stuff for my brother's wedding. Um, and so there's a great example where, you know, they just got overzealous. They thought, oh my goodness, we can predict, you know, that this person uh, is going to be getting married. So therefore, aren't they going to, you know, want uh, great information about, mar- you know, weddings? Um, another good example is, uh, most people probably have heard this one, but if you haven't, it's a great example. Uh, and it's, it's, this one's an example of being creepy and being right, uh, but being too personal. And so mm. in 2012, uh, Target uh, had, a mo- had built a model, a predictive model, uh, that uh, predicted pregnancy likelihood mm. um, and even the birth month. Um, so in this, in this pretty famous case, they sent mailers out with coupons for baby clothes and cribs to those people and well one it turns out was a high school girl in minnesota um and uh the so she was like 15 years old oh wow uh the angry father didn't know demanded answers from the the local target store manager he just Mm kind of stormed into the local target right um and said why are you encouraging my you know teenage daughter to get pregnant um so I guess well, that turns, predictive model was not that good, huh? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. It turns out that he later found out she was pregnant. Oh, really? So he, so he apologized. So but, the mor- but the moral of the story, so they were right. They, their model was right. But even if you're following the law and you're right, you can do things that really get people queasy oh, and that wow. have you know, terrible uh, you know, PR ramifications. So those are, I think, two pretty, pretty good stories. One where they got it wrong, but one where they got it right, but they were still crossing that creepy line. Right, because it's not uh, public uh, information or, or there's some other politically correct, not uh, good advice to go forward with it. I see. Uh, great. So, I mean, one of the things that uh, us visual storytelling uh, uh, folks are interested in is obviously with the growing demand for visual content. Uh, we're talking about videos, there's infographics, there are tons of images that uh, people are producing every day. Where do you see hyper-personalization uh, coming to play uh, in visual content? And, and what are the things people can do to kind of watch not to cross that line? Um, yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's creeping, creeping in, not to, uh, excuse the pun everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, you know, literally like, um, uh, 
web pages are certainly visual content, right? And so the ability to personalize a web page and the experience that you have, so not just a static web page, right. but the what I would call conversational experience you have with that website um, is, uh, is, is, is improving every day. So literally from the background images to the, uh, all the different spots on that website that most of the, most of the people in the field would call like mm -hmm. containers or, you know, spots on the specific banners or hero areas. All of those can be personalized. Um, and, and all of them can be personalized based on not only the content. So in other words, the creative content that goes in there, the imagery, the fonts, the, you know, the size of the text, the colors, um, but also the copy. So exactly what you decide to put the, in there words wise and those blend together to be personalized in, you know, the form of a banner ad, uh, or, you know, the, the actual static imagery. Now, when it's video, um, we're even seeing that to start to be personalized. And what happens is things get, can get inserted in line in the video. Oh, so really? literally, yeah. So you can, you know, you can overlay or underlay whatever term you like, um, things that go into the video that are specific to that person. And that might be, you know, things like the products that they have, um, that, that they, or they don't have. Um, and, and so in a way that that's almost like subliminal. So you're, you're, you're putting in the video and you see this actually, you see, you've seen uh, movies do this with advertisers. Um, now that's not so much personalized yet. You talk about product placement, product placement. Yep. Yeah. Right? But, but in that industry a while ago. <laughs> yeah. But think about set top boxes now yeah. and, the ability to target the geographic areas and then to, you know, actual people that are in that household and things that you know about them. So placing products, you know, into those, um, you know, into those videos that are specific to the needs of that individual. But when you talk about uh, the overlays that you can insert in videos, are you talking about uh, mostly like actual graphic overlays or are you talking about different version of the video that's the actual person that's in the video can actually interact with that product. Yeah, I mean, we are seeing that um, it, it's, it gets a little tricky and sophisticated when you actually, first of all, if you have to have too many versions of video, yeah. that gets expensive, right? right. Um, but uh, you certainly can, uh, can, can work in layers of uh, graphic information. So for instance, a good example would be you know, a video that maybe explains uh, your bill or how to set something up that, you know, you've recently bought, um, you know, those kinds of things can, can incorporate personal data that is associated with your history with that brand. Right, right. Yeah, but I think you're right. I think the, the major hurdle probably is still the, the fact that you cannot really curate videos in real time and introduce new attributes to the video itself because you still the only way to do it is really by creating a separate video and it kind of comes to mind you know that uh, classic uh, ad campaign for burger king you know the subservient kitchen chicken mm. <laughs> remember where they did this insane amount of video versions and you know the, the the viewer whatever you know motion he created or body movement that 
subservient chicken just replicated it. Right. Insane. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if you if you think about it, um, and statistically, it's kind of proven out that even if you have just sixteen versions of something, that can be very effective in getting you additional um, lift. Yep. I see. So you also talked in your uh, article that there are a lot of uh, other implications that uh, hyper-personalization uh, actually focuses on like legal geography, you mentioned culture. Mm. These are things that are mostly fall under the, what we call the black and white, the objective uh, high level uh, variables that you can definitely break them into categories. There are mm. rules that are very explicit that you definitely don't want to cross. Unlike right. those objective that could be in one geo, in one culture, different from one person to another. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think um, <clears throat> I, I, I think that um, we've probably touched on a few of those, but um, you know, we, I, I think many of us are now familiar with some of the privacy laws that are rolling out, like GDPR. Yep. the general data protection regulation that's in the uh, European Union mm -hmm. um, uh, or the California Act that recently passed. Um, and mm -hmm. there's legislatures now in the U.S. and many states that have them, you know, that are not bills that are passed but are, have been submitted. Um, so there's there, so that's very important to make sure that you're looking at those key variables associated with personalization by things like, you know, the, the jurisdiction that they're going to, you know, be aired in. Um, also, I think we touched on it a little, there's the language aspect, but that just gets to the whole cultural aspect, right? So the way, I'm sorry? Localization. Localization, exactly. So, you know, the old adage of, you know, um, think globally, but act locally, yep. Yep. right? Um, I think applies here. And because they can easily, as you personalize, what might be funny, you know, what might be um, understood uh, in, in, you know, based on, again, just pure variables like male, female or income or, you know, in one culture may not work at all uh, yeah. in another culture. Um, I think another aspect that I would pay careful attention to would be, you know, again, the creative and in, in, in visual arts uh, area. So, um, you know, how you personalize is, is really going to be important based on um, how people would react to, you know, the, the creative and the visual art, the visualizations you have. Not everybody reacts to those things the same, right? The, um, the, you know, the example that we get from uh, just the uh, accessibility, like the fact that some people are colorblind, mm -hmm. um, some people are not visual learners, right? Um, right. So most people are in some way, shape or form, because as humans, we, you know, the lucky ones of us that have eyes that work, but we have to remember there are people that don't, that, that learn in more auditory, there are people that are blind, etc. So I think that's an important aspect to remember. Uh, and then I just think in, we, again, we hit on this a little, but you need to think about the, the mass customization of product and media and services. Um, 
has to be matched with your ability to, you know, personalize. So an example of that is it doesn't make a lot of sense to go, you know, hyper personalizing if you've only got one product that comes in one size, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, you're not going to get very far. It doesn't really matter. But, but as technology has enabled us to hyper personalize products, which, which we can do, then you have to have commensurate hyper personalization with the media that you use and the ways that you use to personalize the overall experience that will come with both buying that product as well as using it. And I would also add probably to your point that yes, there is, you know, the, how many versions of your product you can customize, but there's also the, on the other side, how many different customer segments associate with that product. So you kind of have both sides you could actually uh, play with in terms of the personalization effort, right? Yep. Yep. Cool. So let's uh, do a little exercise here. Let's assume that I have a, you know, a wide range of uh, products that I'm about to go to market with, and I'm trying to start uh, my uh, creative work, developing uh, my content marketing strategy that includes a variety of uh, visual assets like videos, uh, images on Instagram, and all that, and how can I stay out of, uh, you know, the danger of, you know, annoying people with information or maybe let's, let's stay in the U.S. market for now because mm. obviously in different cultures, you got to do different things. But how can you personalize, you know, and still stay on the safe side? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, First of all, I think that you're going to want to go very slow, uh, especially if you're in a regulated industry mm -hmm. um, or semi-regulated industry or, you know, something like healthcare, right? The, the sensitivity to the data that you provide healthcare providers mm -hmm. and the expectation that I have as a consumer that you're going to only use it for very specific purposes that I'm well aware of is, is a trust factor that can't, can't be violated, um, or it just it results in massive problems. Whereas a retailer that's, you know, selling or, you know, like a grocery store or something, it, the, the consumer is, has a slightly more, you know, liberal view of, you know, the, the, their experience with that, with that brand and their um, tolerance mm -hmm. with some mistakes, let's say, or some, you know, faux pas. Right. Um, so, uh, but, but as we've seen with the target example, not always. So we have to, we have to be careful there. Um, but I do think that um, you, what you should do is work kind of from the bottom up um, and, and, uh, and test, you know, like if you're, go if you're thinking of personalizing to some extent, then don't roll it out immediately if you're not sure what the impact will be. Roll it out slowly to a very small sample. Get the reaction of those people in a sort of a protected or a contained, you know, environment. Mm -hmm. So that if it has a bad reaction, you can easily pull it back without, you know, you can just ditch the idea and go to some other idea. Um, right. I think that's the, the mistake that um, certainly big companies have made is they, they, they come up with these ideas 
and they sort of they they get all through the approval process inside the company but they they never were really tested with true consumers on the outside that could give give the sense check to them right. and where they could get that reaction that sort of common sense reaction that comes from the consumer's viewpoint and then and then you know adjust or you know fix those mistakes so yeah, I think um you're absolutely I, yeah. right you know it's always better to better test your assumptions before you kind of boil the ocean with a full-blown campaign that you release all your creative artillery and <laughs> right. hope for the best. So one thing you mentioned that uh, probably will be also interesting for audiences is that uh, when you, obviously you mentioned there are different industries, each one retail versus healthcare, that will have wide or narrow a room of maneuvering, but Part of the the space for playing in the sandbox, so to speak, is kind of really coming from a, the top of the funnel, the information capture, what you are allowed to, to capture, what information you're allowed to capture from your user at the top of the funnel. Right. Then once they're trickling down and moving down the steps, it's really what you can track them in real time, right? So there, there is what they do manually and what the CRM system is doing in the background. Yeah, that's a great observation. And I think that also, that also that, that, you know, funnel, if you will, is, um, is, is usually one that I would say sort of brings the real customer and the individual into focus mm -hmm. as you build a relationship with them. So initially as a brand, you know, somebody might be literally just a cookie. Uh, and, and so you don't know them from, you know, anybody else, right, other than right. a device ID. And so maybe you have, you know, some idea about where the location is because you have an IP address. Mm -hmm. But that's about all you have. And then once they actually you drive them to your, you know, you can go get some third party data, but that's not very reliable, not necessarily in, indic indicating true behavior of that person that's behind that device. Um, because as we know, like, you know, different people can share devices yep. um, and, uh, and, and you can do shopping on behalf of somebody else on a device. And you get personalization, personalized content on behalf of the other guy. <laughs> right. So that's the, the kind of Pinterest example that I gave. Yeah. Um, but as you, as you, as that relationship um, deepens mm -hmm. um, and you get more clarity about that person, and that's called kind of people-based personalization, mm -hmm. um, you're going to have the ability to do a better job at personalization. So because you, you're triangulating, you're really – that person is com coming into focus. Uh, and, uh, and therefore – and also you're probably building up a trust factor with them. Mm -hmm. And that's the trust factor that you can't violate. But if you, um, if you, if you play your cards correctly – um, you can deepen that relationship further and further by adding value when you personalize because the person says, hey, great. Yes, you know where I'm going today. Mm -hmm. You know it's going to take me 10 minutes. And that was valuable to, to tell me that because now all I have to do is push one button and that's where I'm going. So it made it more convenient for me also. That's the kind of the Google Maps example. Yeah. So, so this uh, mind reading capability for these systems is very important, but as you rightly pointed out, it's got to be 
together with uh, adding some real strong value to the relationship that over time that value is translated into trust and to willingness to act more on your call to actions. Yep. One of the things that uh, also I found very interesting in your article, and maybe this would give a segue to this uh, question of what is the remedy for hyperpersonalization. So you talked about uh, creating a sensitivity score. Maybe you can talk about that. You know, if I'm a marketer that I have an audience that I'm personalizing and I want to be very careful not to cross that red line, how can I create some solution for me to be able to differentiate where I'm crossing and when I'm safe? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, um, I liken it to uh, other models that that um, brands develop. And a good example is a churn model. You mm -hmm. know, most telecommunication providers, for instance, are, are most businesses that have some kind of a contract with a customer. Uh, and therefore, it's an exclusive relationship. And therefore, they're very worried about um, how uh, shaky that customer is getting potentially uh, with, that, with that brand. Mm -hmm. And therefore, maybe deciding to shop around, especially as you know, a contract is coming to expiration. Mm -hmm. um, they they track and and they have what they call a churn score. So that's um, it's not it's not black and white. It's not mm -hmm. on and off. It's a prediction about you know how likely you are to go try to find another uh, provider. And um, and so I, I think that you can you can treat now. I guess the first thing I would say is if you can ask customers directly, ask them ask for permission, um, ask them if something is, you know, is, is appropriate, um, you know, get them to click on things where they get explanations for why you did things. Mm -hmm. uh, and if they complain about that, record that. But, but in the absence of that kind of direct voice of the customer information, um, you can certainly put together some kind of sensitivity score to personalization, just like you could put together a churn score. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, and, you know, you could start out with a fairly you know, rudimentary model that um, didn't do anything but just, you know, have a few uh, rules that score something as high, medium, or low mm -hmm. uh, with some obvious um, outcomes. You know, in other words, it's obvious that if they made some major complaint about something you did, that their sensitivity is very high. Very high, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, but you can get a little more sophisticated with that. Um, and churn models have certainly got very sophisticated with looking at things like, you know, in churn models, they look at, you know, social sediment, you know, things that will be posted on social media. They look at uh, network problems, like how many drop calls have you had and mm -hmm. how much problem are you having with your you know, maybe equipment um, and, uh, and how many complaints you've lodged and all these things that uh, not one of them, uh, you know, alone causes a churn, you know, score to be crossing a threshold, but usually a variety of them reach a certain, you know, area. That's interesting. Yeah, I think this sensitivity score can definitely be a simple approach to start uh, differentiating uh, the goals of your customer in terms of what level of personalization they want to get into. But I'm kind of wondering in terms of, uh, do you see examples where also the 
on the front end, the user has a capability to choose, you know, the personalization level. So basically you just give them a few options. I, I feel like, you know, I, I feel lucky, like Google search <laughs> results for search engine, you know, I'm looking for some sort of serendipity in terms of uh, the content I'd like to see versus give me what, or let's put it very bluntly, read my mind what I want right now. <laughs> it's just two extremes, right? Right. So do you see those examples in the navigation flow of systems? Um, yeah, I, I think that you can do some of that, but I, I could give you an example of a, of, a, of a situation where I don't think as a brand you necessarily need to ask the customer whether it's okay if you personalize mm -hmm. and you personalize and they benefit from it. So that example would be, because uh, it's kind of innocuous. That example would be uh, if um, if I put a web page in front of you, and um, uh, and and for you, I put on a call to action button, uh, see the offers, mm. and for me, I put on uh, the uh, call to action button, uh, click here. Right. Uh, two different versions of something that you know is very innocuous. Neither one was like incredibly controversial um and it may well be that you respond to the one that i gave you more and better than you would have to the other one sure. and i can learn that and do that and i can use software to do that um and that's personalization i'm now personalizing your button because i know that you'll respond to that kind of button more than you will another button yeah. i don't really need to tell you that sure sure no i'm just curious about the, the, the range of uh, options here. So before we close, I have a last two question for you. Uh, obviously, with, with the tremendous growth rate of AI market, where do you see the future of this space is headed towards? Because we also talk a lot about, uh, you know, the problems of deep fake technologies and, you know, the, the fact that uh, over personalization create this uh, closed loop of people seeing just uh, things that they are used to they're not exposed to anything else yeah um uh that's a that's a deep question <laughs> yeah, just high just high level observations yeah i mean i think high level is my take is there's always been sort of uh and always will be good and bad in the world um and that means there's there's good people applying uh, technology to solve, you know, meaningful problems for humanity. Yeah. Uh, and then there's bad actors that use that same technology for nefarious purposes. Right. Uh, and you can look through human history and find every example of technological advances. You'll find that that situation. It's divided. Right. Um, nu nu nuclear. Right. Um, is, a, is a great example. Nuclear can help us with power, but at the same time, it can be used as weaponry. Um, but but overall, I, I'm a pretty optimistic person, um, and uh, you know, I, I but not based on blind faith. Uh, it's because when I look at technology, and including this personalization technology, um, things that have been you know used for human advancement. Um, they um they they evolve and 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 it does it does create a better world as long as we allow the right the right governances to to also play in in um in the uh 
in the evolution mm -hmm. uh, so that we can weed out some of that, you know, that bad and overall things are improving. Right. And right. we've seen that with, you know, with our ability to um, feed the world's population, our ability, you know, with, with technology, our ability to make our lives more convenient for this planet to, you know, be able to sustain the billions of people it has. If we didn't have technology, that wouldn't be possible. Right. So right. I think that the experiences that we can give people that are buying things every day, that are using things, um, we can use this personalization technology to make those experiences better. And legitimately, people like that when those experiences are more fulfilling, when they're easier, when they're more convenient. And that's the thing people respond to. And that's where personalization, you know, um, can help. That's so true. I mean, I, I see it all the time, you know, with every new technology that's coming out. So you're absolutely right here. So I just want to kind of uh, bring uh, this uh, fantastic discussion to kind of a closure and maybe you can summarize uh, for our audience uh, now that we went through all the different uh, aspects of hyper-personalization. As visual, visual storytellers who look into personalized or visual content and want to avoid creepiness, what would you say your top three tips for them? Um, yeah, I would say first and foremost, wear the customer's shoes. Mm -hmm. And think about um, how that personalization will come off from their perspective. Mm -hmm. um, since, you know, one customer is not like another, you and I are similar in some ways, but different in many others. Um, you'll, you will need to, we talked about this early on, you'll need to use these sort of this, this idea of a persona test. Yep. Um, you, and, and as you get more hyper-personalized, you're going to need more persona tests. Yeah. Um, so so that that would be sort of the you know, the first tip. And then I think how you sort of, again, test and, and roll that out. Um, don't be afraid to ask for customers feedback. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as you're, as you're coming up with your hypothesis with, with you know, for what the customers would want. Um, the, the second tip I'd give is um, all content uh, is made up of some kind of visual and storyline with copy, right? Mm -hmm. So yep. make sure not to only personalize the visual aspects and creative aspects, which are important, absolutely, but also the scripts and the words. So the copy that goes into it and the story that you're actually telling, make sure to um, you know, personalize that. And, and there's some interesting examples of technology that's actually out there right now. There's a company called Persado um, mm -hmm. that is doing some interesting work with language personalization. Mm -hmm. um, so check that out and, and just think about that aspect of it of it also. The, the third tip I'd say, um, which is we, we've, we've hit on a little bit, is the uh, age-old adage of a good data-driven marketer, which is test, test, test. Um, get test some initial repeats. That's what I was told in my agency yeah, day. <laughs> exactly. Um, so get some initial data. Don't be afraid to ask your customers. Come up with a hypothesis, but then don't do anything without testing it. And uh, and, and, and uh, test early and often. So uh, awesome. there's a few tips. <laughs> Wonderful. I want to thank you so much for this fantastic conversation today. You know, it's so important to touch on topics that uh, people are sometimes blinded by the, you know, that shiny objects and don't consider the negative implication that could uh, trickle in. And I think we 
cover that today. So just to, to close, uh, if our people would like to contact you with any questions, how can they can reach out to you? Sure, yeah, and I'd be happy to, you know, field any questions. Um, well, you know, I'm I, I'm out there just because of technology, right? Oh, so yeah. you can go you can Google me, um, and uh, so if you just Google V Jeffs or Vince Jeffs, um, I think my LinkedIn profile comes up ranked one for that, you know, that search term. Um, so feel free to ping me, uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, I respond pretty pretty well to LinkedIn messages and and um, you know those kinds of things. So please do that. Um, and if, you know, feel free if you're so interested to check out some of my other articles on Customer Think. I have about 25 of them and out there on I, this area. I can area. attest to that. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, wonderful. All right, so thank you again, Vince, and for all of you watching or listening. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you in our next episode. So until next time, take care and take care of your visual stories. Visual Storytelling Today is recorded in Miami, Florida. The show is published exclusively by Visual Storytelling Institute. Learn more at visualstorytell.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on the iTunes Store. Until next time, don't let your big story wait to be told.